We are, as you know, in the book of Mark, Mark chapter 11. We did verses 1 through 11 last week, and we're going to finish the rest of chapter 11 today. It's a big chunk of Scripture. Starting in verse 12, we're going to go all the way to verse 33, but let me open up with this illustration, if you will. Our college football coach and many others um, have this saying, the bigger they are, the harder they fall. We've heard that saying, right? This applies with equal relevance to uh, the business and uh, professional arenas as well. If you question this claim, ask flamboyant automobile entrepreneur John DeLorean, who left years ago a corporate uh, the corporate nest at General Motors to start his own automobile uh, manufacturing company in Northern Ireland. If you remember, the DeLorean was in the movies uh, Back to the Future, right? That silver, funky-looking car. The dream, however, burned out for DeLorean when his debts flared. His company went into receivership, and DeLorean was also later indicted on alleged drug trafficking but was acquitted. Ask Jake Butcher, another bright entrepreneur, a banker who enjoyed living in the fast lane. Butcher worked for years to bring the World's Fair to Knoxville, Tennessee. He stood by President Reagan as the uh, fair formally opened in 1982. Subsequently, within a year, Butcher, or yeah, shortly thereafter, he flew to Louisville in his private jet to attend the Kentucky Derby with his friend, Governor John Brown, on February 14. 1983, within a year, much to the amazement of the people of Knoxville and the nation, Butcher's United American Bank was declared insolvent by the state banking commissioner and was closed down. The FDIC sold it to a Memphis holding company called First Tennessee National Corporation, which opened it shortly thereafter. Butcher has since been sentenced to a a federal prison term for bank fraud. These dramatic reversals emphasize the truth of what Solomon warned about in Proverbs 16, verse 18, that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. So often, too many of us, as we know, stories like this, the outside looks brilliant, but the inside something's wrong at the core. And that's what we're going to talk about in our passage for this morning. Amen? Let's read Mark 11, 12 through 33, and then we're going to pray. And then we're going to stick our foot in the gas and go for it. Mark 11, chapter, uh, Mark 11, chapter 11, verse 12, all the way to verse 33. Starting at verse 12. On the next day, when they had left Bethany, this is right after the triumphal entry, which we discussed last week, Jesus became hungry. So they're going back to Jerusalem. And seeing at a distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. That's our first stanza. Our second stanza. We have four stanzas this morning. Then they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And he began to teach and say to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den. The chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him, for they were afraid of him, for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening had came, 
they again left and went out of the city. As they were passing by in the morning, heading back again to Jerusalem, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. And being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has indeed withered. And Jesus answered, saying to them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted him. Therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and then they will be granted to you, or they will be granted to you. Whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who was in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father forgive you of your transgressions. And our last uh, stanza, our fourth one, they came again to Jerusalem. And He was walking in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to Him and began saying to Him, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do these things? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question and you answer me. And then I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. And they began reasoning among themselves saying, if we say from heaven, he's going to say, then why did you not believe him? But shall we say from men? Well, they were afraid of the people for everyone considered John not to have been from men, but to be a real prophet. And so answering Jesus, they said, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither or nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Wow. Let's pray. Lord, it's so good to be here. To gather together as sons and daughters of the Lord Most High. We thank You, Lord, that You are so gracious and so loving that You sent Your Son, Jesus Christ, to pay a price, Lord, that we could never pay. Lord, may we continue to learn what it means to be like Him. Lord, have Your way with us this morning, we pray. And Lord, I pray that our hearts and our minds and our spirits would be willing and ready to have an encounter with You. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, Again, it's good to be with you guys. Thank you so much for being here. Here's our outline for this morning, the four stanzas that I mentioned, right? The first, those first three verses, right, about the figs having, a fig tree just having leaves, right? That we're not called to just be leaves, <laughs> right? Little play on words, right? Don't just be leaves. And our second stanza is the temple is supposed to be for prayers, not payers. For prayers, not payers. Thank you, Kathy. Appreciate the chuckle. I'll take what I can get. In the third stanza about figs, faith, and forgiveness. We'll leave this up for a smidge so you can get it all written down. And in the last stanza, verses 27 through 33, a question about authority. And they want answers. And Jesus says, you answer me first. And it creates some angst in their conversation. Let's recap last week. We'll leave that up there. You guys keep writing that down. Last week, if you recall, Jesus leaves Jericho and He's heading to Jerusalem. And as they approach Jerusalem, if you remember in, 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 in chapter 11, verse 1, they stop near, uh, near the Mount of Olives where they get a, a beautiful glimpse of Jerusalem, which is two miles to the west. And Jesus does what? He sends immediately two of His disciples to the nearby village 
to find a donkey for his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And we remember, or if you remember that, you know, what's awaiting him there is two things, a, a thing of burden and a thing of beauty, a thing of burden and a thing of beauty, the burden of crucifixion and death, but the beauty of life and resurrection that extends to all of us from Jerusalem outward. And so they bring the two disciples, bring the donkey to Jesus and they put their coats on the donkey and Jesus boldly takes his place upon that donkey to ride into Jerusalem. And others on the way, they spread their coats in the road as he heads for Jerusalem and others spread leafy branches. And those in front and those behind are shouting what? Hosanna! Hosanna in the highest! And what a great scene that is. And then what happens? Look in verse 11. This is the last verse that we covered last week. So we end in verse 10. Hosanna in the highest! And then we get to verse 11. Jesus entered Jerusalem, came into the temple, looks around, and heads back home with the twelve. I don't know about you, but that's such kind of a weird drop-off verse for me, right? Hosanna in the highest! And Jesus just kind of strolls in, checks out the temple. Probably more than a few seconds, the temple was very large. There was a lot going on. It's Passover week. There's thousands upon thousands of people. But it seems somewhat anticlimactic to me. That verse does. It's like, that's just kind of weird. But, as perhaps we know, and as perhaps we are still learning, our Lord is always at work. Always at work. Always making observations, which is what He was doing in verse 11. Always trying to make things right. Always aware of the good, the bad, and the ugly. Thank the Lord. And always deals with things in His timing based on what we already know about Jesus, just from the book of Mark, no doubt when he went back in verse 11, he took some time to pray. He took some time to grieve over what he saw. He took some time to seek wisdom from his heavenly Father over what he saw taking place in that temple, in the city of Jerusalem, and in his nation called Israel, his people. The cursing of the fig tree in 12 through 14 and the cleansing of the temple are both symbolic to illustrate the sad spiritual condition of His church, of the nation of Israel, His people. And from there, as we know later, to launch the early church through the twelve disciples. These prophecies or these prophetic actions reveal the coming judgment on unfaithful Israel by the destruction eventually of Jerusalem and the temple, their beloved temple. Israel, like the fig tree, appeared to be thriving. It appeared to be thriving, but in reality was bearing no fruit. The magnificence of the temple, the thing that they were so proud of, masked the corruption and the false security that went along with it. We are so good at that. We just are people in general. Just as the fig tree was cursed and withered, so Israel was about to be condemned and decline in their importance. Sad. Israel was outwardly fruitless. That's the fig tree. And they were inwardly corrupt. That's the temple. Outwardly fruitless because they were inwardly corrupt. That's just the way it goes. 
Check out Luke 13, 6 and 7, because Mark doesn't have this parable, but Luke does. And so this cursing of the fig tree would make sense to the disciples. When he began to tell this parable, a man had a fig tree, which had been planted in his vineyard. And he came looking for fruit on it and did not find any. And so the man says to his vineyard keeper, Behold, for three years I've come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? When he says, behold, for three years, what does that three years represent? Jesus Christ's public ministry. For three years, he did his ministry. And that's what is being told in this parable. That for three years, Jesus saw no fruit from his own people. Primarily, no fruit. Clearly, there was always some, a remnant with faith that did well. And just so we know, it's unusual for Jesus to act in judgment. Jesus did not typically act in judgment. Check out John 3, 17, 18, and 19. This is the nature of our loving and caring Lord. God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. God loves us and wants to save us and brings us salvation from the stuff that corrupts us. He who believes in Him is not judged But he who does not believe has been judged already. Why? Because that person has not believed in the name of God's only begotten Son. And this is the judgment that the light, Jesus, has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than the light. And so they choose their judgment. It's like if I don't pay my electricity bill. Nobody's judging me if they turn off my uh, turn off my lights. That's the judgment I've chosen by not paying my bill. Make sense? Or I can choose to pay my bill. I bring judgment upon myself when I choose darkness rather than light. Nonetheless, there does come a time when it's the only thing God can do is to judge when we continue to walk in darkness and be unfruitful. So, our first stanza, don't just believe. Mark 11, 12, 13, and 14. Let's plow through those three verses. On the next day, when they left Bethany, he became hungry. Seeing at a distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if perhaps he could find anything on it. And when he uh, came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. Hmm. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. Apart from the drowning of the pigs in Mark chapter 5, this is the only instance of our Lord using his miraculous power to destroy something in nature. The cursing of the fig tree was an object lesson on failure, which we've already discussed. Israel had failed to be fruitful for God. They were nothing but leaves. In the Old Testament, if you didn't know this, the fig tree is actually associated with the nation of Israel all throughout the Old Testament. Some verses, if you want to look in Jeremiah 8, you can go there, Hosea 9 or Nahum 3, where Israel is talked about as being a fig tree. And so they were expected to produce fruit. Look at verse 13. Seeing at a distance these leaves, he was hoping to see something to be found nothing but the leaves, for it was not the season for figs. So, it's kind of weird, right? It's like, why is he cursing if it's not the season for figs? That's really not the point. Let me tell you the point. Mark's making it clear that there's no figs because it's not the season for figs. It's not really the issue. Jesus uses the fig tree as an object lesson. Just like the pigs didn't do anything wrong when they jumped off the cliff when he cast out the legion of demons. It had nothing to do with the pigs. This has nothing to do with the fig tree. Mark is saying, 
There's a reason there's no figs on the fig tree, because if there were figs on the fig tree, it would be hard for Jesus to use the fig tree as an illustration. So don't worry about the fig tree. The fig tree is just fine. You with me? If you are, it's a miracle. But here's what's cool. How often, I wonder, do we misunderstand and focus our thoughts and our concerns on the reasons or rationale or the faults of the physical things that are happening where something happens to a fig tree, something happens to the pigs, and we're trying to make sense out of that. And it's just an object lesson for something else God's doing somewhere else. Make sense? The Lord, oftentimes, when things happen, we see it, and I think it's... I think Karen will do that, right? Where something happens and Karen says, hmm, I wonder what God's up to. Is that right? I I wonder what God's preparing me for. So you've shared that with me. I love that. Like, hmm, the fig tree just withered. I wonder what God's preparing me for instead of trying to figure out the whole fig tree thing, right? Let me ask you this. Does not the Lord Almighty have the right to use what He wants, when He wants, for the reasons He wants? Yes? Yeah. I agree. Look at verse 14. He says, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. Those words are pretty clear. Those words are pretty clear. May no one ever eat fruit from you again. Clear words but not necessarily a clear understanding yet. The words are clear, but the understanding is not. Let me give you a couple ideas. It could mean this. A, the tree will keep on producing fruit, but no one's going to eat from it. Could it mean that? Absolutely. No one will ever eat fruit from you again. You'll have fruit, but no one's going to stop by and pluck. That could mean, that could be one meaning, right? You with me? A second one, the tree will keep on living, it just won't produce fruit anymore. It'll just be leaves. Could it mean that? Absolutely. Or, there's just no longer going to be a tree, because it's going to wither from the roots up. Right? Those are three options so far. In this case, we learn later in verse 20, the fate of the tree, that it withered from the roots up. But my point, again, is this, that clear words were delivered to his disciples, to his followers. He spoke a truth, but the understanding was delayed. Clear words were delivered, but the understanding was delayed. I think the Lord does that with us often. He speaks to us. He prompts us. He leads us in a certain truth, and we have to wait. And what did it say the disciples did after he said that? No one will eat from you again. They listened. That's all they did. They didn't act. They didn't question. They just listened. Hmm. I'll give you an illustration. hope this is a good one. I used it last night. It seemed to resonate. So when I was finishing my MBA at Biola five plus years ago, um, at Biola you have to take 15 three-unit classes. That's 45 units. Of those 15 classes, two of them have to be uh, theology courses because it's a Christian university, right? And so the 13 classes that were business related, yeah, it was engaging. The two theology courses, I was riveted. I couldn't get enough. I just was so um, drawn to what I was learning in these theology courses. And I remember talking to my wife. I'm like, I'm, I'm just about to finish. Like my second theology class was my last semester and it was a two and a half year grind. It was a lot of work to get my MBA when I have a family and, and, and a full-time job. And so I just really felt like God was being clear that he wanted me to continue to go to school. So I took a year off and then I started seminary. I didn't have any idea why. 
But I was pretty clear that that's what I was supposed to do. And then a couple of years later, this place called the Rock Community Church calls me. And it's like, oh, so that's what that's about. Right. So God, I think, speaks to us clear words. He delivers clear words, but he sometimes delays what those clear words mean. And I think we just need to rest in those things. Amen. We need to listen and wait, just like the disciples did. Another takeaway is this. How do you and I look at a distance? How do you and I look at a distance? Full of leaves? Look good at a distance? And when we get real close, we peel back the layers of your life, is there fruit? It's a fear that a lot of us have of letting people really see who we are. Because maybe we aren't who we appear to be on the outside. And so we keep people at an arm's length. Because we don't want them to get too close. Because perhaps we're not the followers that we need to be. And so we fear. It's often our biggest fear. But I want to challenge you that your biggest fear is not having people in your life that can see your fruit and can pour into you and that can love you. We can be that for one another. We're called to be that for one another. Let me ask you this. If at a distance, the relationship we have now I preach, you listen, I go home. And however I'm portraying myself to be, you look at me from your seat and say, wow, he has a lot of leaves and appears to be fruit. But you got close up and you found out that most of what I'm preaching and teaching and saying is not how I live my life. Would that be good? You would be, I believe, highly disappointed and let down if my life didn't match with the words that came out of my mouth. Should it be any different for you? Is the Lord going to judge you any differently? The Lord loves us. We can draw near to Him. We can draw near to one another to make sure we're living fruitful lives. That's what this place needs to be. That's what church should be about. And I'm thankful that it is here, but we're going to get better. Turn to Matthew 3, 5-10. through 10, John the Baptist As we wrap up this stanza about being fruitful, John th- uh, Matthew 3, 5-10, through 10, Jerusalem was going out to John the Baptist and all Judea and all the district around the Jordan. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. Good start. And then he saw some of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism. And he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Because they weren't being sincere about what they were going to go out there for. And so this, this verse is very powerful. He says, you want to repent, that's fine. You want to get baptized, that's fine. But you better bear fruit in keeping with that repentance. That's what it says. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not suppose you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Oh, yeah, so what does that mean? For I say to you, from these stones, God is able to raise up children from Abraham. Next question, next statement. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Oh, we must be fruit-bearing Christians. And we know that. And I think we're doing a great job. 
but let's just get better. Let's excel still more. The Old Testament talks about us being fruitful, that we're to be fruitful. John the Baptist talks about being fruitful. Jesus talks about being fruitful. Verse 20 shows us that the tree withered. How? From the roots up. What do your roots look like? What do your roots look like? What are you feeding the roots of your life, the roots of your spiritual life? Because eventually, if they're not fed the right stuff from the roots up, we will wither. And it happens. It happens. In the church, often. People don't feed their roots, and so they wither. And they're gone. Our second stanza, verses 15 through 19, prayers, not payers. We need prayers, not payers. Mark 11, 15 through 19. Let's read that real quick. And they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And he began to teach and say to them, is it not written? My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. That's why we're here. But you have made it a robber's den. The chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him, for they were afraid, because the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And then when evening came, they left the city again. Interestingly enough, it could be argued that legitimate things were actually taking place in the temple. Let me explain. Overlooking the fact that the priests were making some money on the whole deal, let's just overlook that for a second. These services were actually a convenience to the Jews who traveled to Jerusalem to worship. And that's where it gets tricky, right? Suppose a Jew carried his own sacrifice with him and then discovered that it was rejected because of some blemish. The money rates were always changing, so the men who exchanged foreign currency were doing the visitors a favor, even though the merchants were making a generous profit. And so sometimes we we muddy the waters a little bit, right? We find good reasons to do unhealthy stuff. And we're guilty of that at times. I used to wrestle with that the 20 years I was in sales. You know, how do I... How do I um, as a as a godly man, sell with integrity and not have to compromise my faith just to make a sale. This religious market that was set up, it was set up in the court of the Gentiles of all places. Yes, there was a court for the Gentiles in Jerusalem, in the temple. The one place where Jews should have been busy doing serious missionary work. They were selling stuff. I pray we never lose sight of that being a priority in this building. That it's not just about us growing in our faith, but growing God's kingdom for those around us. Amen? May we always be a welcoming place to those that come to visit. In this last year, if my math is correct, and Rob, you can verify some of this, we probably had 250 plus people in the last 12 months that have visited our, our campus, our church, you and I. Maybe closer to 300, 350, but at least 250. We have visitors all the time. And I hope we embrace them. I hope we represent our Lord well. I hope we love them. So when people come through, so I'm going to do a little coaching here. So I used to coach baseball. Okay, so here's a little coaching. Okay. So when people come to visit, because we have, we have proof that we have visitors all the time. They will evaluate whether they're going to come back based on how nice the church is. Raise your hand if you're a nice person. I'm a nice person. I'm going to raise my hand. Please raise your hand. Raise your hand even if you're not a nice person. Just I don't want you to. I don't want you to stand out. 
right. We're nice people. So, Justin, I know you're nice, but if I'm a visitor, how do I know you're nice? Right? He's nice, but how do I know he's nice? Let me tell you how visitors know if we're nice or not. They measure how nice the church is by the number of people that say hi to them. That's it. That church was so nice. So many people said hi to me. And so don't be afraid to say, um, Brad, right? So if, if Brad's a visitor, this is how I would do it. Just say, my name is Mark. I don't think we've met. I'm Brad. Nice to meet you. So glad to be here with you. Whatever. Something like that. Right? Just, hi, my name's Mark. Hi, my name's Joe. Hi, my name's Stacy. Hi, my name's... Just say hi. Second thing to coach, and I shared this at men's breakfast maybe six or seven months ago. Starting next week, we're going to have a seating chart at church. Thank you for laughing because that is actually a joke. But we laugh, but don't you kind of all sit in the same spots anyway? Right? I'm always in the same spot, you know? We all kind of sit in the same spot. So I heard this years ago. We have chairs, but let's pretend they're pews because it, it rolls off the tongue better. Be the pastor of your pew. Be the pastor of your pew. Karen, you always, Karen always sits there. I could put my Bible where Karen's sitting and Karen will move my Bible over there and sit where my Bible was. Is this true? Oh, it's totally true. And I love that. It's Karen's chair. Anyway, we sit in the same spots. Pastor your pew. If you see somebody new around you, in front of you, behind you, when you're pew, just pastor them, love them, say hi to them. All right, that's enough of the coaching. You guys are pretty nice. I know most of you. But we need to know how to be nice to those that come through our doors, right? I have no idea where I'm at. Oh, here I am. If a Gentile visited the temple and saw what was going on in the name of the Lord, they would never want to come back. They would not want to believe in that kind of a God. Look at verse 17. In verse 17 of Mark 11, we see this, this quote that Jesus makes. And it's a combination quote. Part of it's from Isaiah 56, and the other part is from Jeremiah 7, where it says, My prayer should be, uh, my house is, is a house of prayer, but you made it a robber's den. The first part is from Isaiah 56, and the last part, the robber's den, is from Jeremiah 7. Turn with me to uh, Isaiah 56, verses 1 through 7. From the very beginning, God had in mind a people to represent Him to other people. The outsiders. Isaiah 56, 1-7 Thus says the Lord, Preserve justice, do righteousness, for my salvation is about to come and my righteousness to be revealed. How blessed is the man and woman who does this and the son of man who takes hold of it, who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and keeps his hands from doing evil. In other words, be fruitful. No, let not the foreigner who has joined himself to us, to the Lord, say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. Nor let the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath and choose what pleases me, being fruitful, and hold fast my covenant, to them I will give in my house and within my walls a memorial. And they name better 
than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name which will not be cut off. He has in mind outsiders. Also the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to Him and to love the name of the Lord, to be His servants, everyone who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and holds fast My covenant. Verse 7, Even those I will bring to My holy mountain, Jerusalem, and make them joyful in My house of prayer, Their burnt offerings, their sacrifices will be acceptable, of course, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Oh, I just think that's so powerful. The Jews mistakenly looked on the temple primarily as a place of sacrifice, but Jesus saw it then and sees it now as a place of prayer. Prayer is a sacrifice to God. Check out Psalm 141 verses 1 and 2. Where the psalmist says, O Lord, I call upon you. Hasten to me. Give ear to my voice when I call to you. May my prayer be counted as incense before you. The lifting up of my hands as an evening offering. I hope we've come to pray and to praise our God and to have an encounter with Him. Because this is a place of prayer and a place of praise. Do we go to church in order to maintain our outward appearance? Our leaves? Oh, I'm a good person. I go to church every weekend. Okay, you have leaves. That's great. Let's talk about the fruit. Let's take a closer look. Or do we go to church to worship and pray and glorify God? As always, I cannot thank this church enough for the ways that you give of your time and your talent and your treasures. So many of us do so well. But we must remember that the Lord's house is one of prayer and one of praise. And His Word, as we get to know Him more, helps us do that more effectively. Can I get an amen? Our third stanza, figs, faith, and forgiveness. Mark eleven twenty through 26 They were passing by in the morning, going back to Jerusalem. They saw the fig. And Peter reminds them, he says that the tree that you curse has withered. And then Jesus answered this way, have faith in God. And he goes on this, these verses um, about how to pray or about having faith, if you will. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted him. Therefore, I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them and they will be granted you. Whenever you stand praying, so there's your proof right there. It's okay to stand and pray. It's not against the rules, right? Forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father will also forgive you. Jesus uses the fig tree not only to point out the failures of the nation of Israel, but to teach His disciples about faith. I don't know where you'd rank on the scale from 1 to 10, 10 being really good in your faith, but I hope it's growing. I hope our numbers are getting big. God's always wanting to increase our faith. In Jewish imagery, a mountain signifies something strong and immovable. A problem, if you will, that seems to stand in the way of our lives. And that's what he's talking about here. And we can move these mountains only by trusting in our God. And so Jesus is what he's really doing is he's preparing them for his departure. We know within a few days he's going to be crucified. So he's preparing his disciples for his departure and he's preparing them for their future to launch the early church. And when we get into the book of Acts, a lot of I love the book of Acts, man. It's just insane. 
But they are praying people and they're moving mountains. And so that's what he wants to teach them. You're going to need a lot of faith when I depart. But the Holy Spirit's going to come and you're going to be praying people and you're going to move mountains for the kingdom. And that's exactly what they've done. And we sit here today because of mountains that those early men moved. I'm so thankful. But there's a warning in these verses too. If we take these verses 23 and 24 by themselves, we're going to miss something because we always need to consider the full counsel of God, right? And not isolate things to make our points, if you will, or the things that want to um, fit our own theology. So let me give you just a couple because we don't have time to do more. But let me tell you about prayer. And, and, and if, I, if I make any mistakes here, go to Doug and Kathy. They'll correct uh, me. And I'm totally content with that. I can be reproved. I have no problem with that. Anyway, here's some things we need to consider about the full counsel of God about praying. One, let me give, I'm going to give you three, and then we'll break them down. The first one, prayer must be in the will of God. When we pray, it must be done in the will of God. Prayer must be in the will of God. Two, we must be abiding in the love of God. We need to pray in the will of God, and we must be abiding in the love of God. And three, we must be extending the forgiveness of God. We must be extending the forgiveness of God. We must pray in the will of God. We must abide in the love of God. And we must extend the forgiveness of God. The first one, prayer must be in the will of God. Look at 1 John 5, 14 and 15. Great verse for this point being made. This is the confidence, church, which we have before our Lord. That if we ask anything, how? According to His will. He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from Him. Wow! Romans 10.17 How do we increase our faith? Faith comes from hearing. And hearing the Word of Christ. As we read His Word, we hear the Word of God, it shapes our understanding of the will of God and which will allow us then to pray according to the will of God. Amen? The second one, we must be abiding in the love of God. Turn to John 15. Turn to John 15. We're going to read verses 1 through 11. John 15, 1 through 11. This is about abiding in the love of God. John 15, 1 through 11. We know these verses. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes it away. But every one of us that bears fruit, he prunes. Well, I need to know. I know I need to bear fruit, but I don't like that pruning part. Oh, it's so it's so great and so painful, but it's beautiful, so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which you have received from me, because I spoke it to you. Abide in me, and let me abide in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. From apart from me, nothing. You can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up and they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. But if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's and abide in His love. And I've spoken all these things so that you and I can have joy and it will be full. So we must pray in the will of God. 
And we must abide in the love of God. But we must also extend the forgiveness of God when we pray. And we see that in our text for this morning in Mark um, 11, verse 25, when it says, when you, when you pray, forgive. If you stand there praying, forgive. So that's also a requirement. And so sometimes our prayers aren't heard because we're not praying according to the will of God. We're not abiding in the love of God. And we haven't extended the forgiveness of God. Check out Psalm 66, 18. The psalmist says, if I regard wickedness in my heart, what will happen? The Lord will not hear. Our hearts are wicked. We need to confess that. Let me give you an idea of what real prayer is. Real prayer is always being in constant communion with God. Real prayer is always being in constant communion with God. Always in prayer, always in the Word, always in praise. Amen? And lastly, our last stanza, authority, answers, and angst. Mark 11, 27-33, where Jesus' authority is questioned. Verse 27, They came again to Jerusalem, and as He was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, which, by the way, makes up what's called the Sanhedrin. I'll tackle that in a second. And they began saying to Him, By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? And Jesus said to them, I'll ask you one question. And you answer me, and then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. And he says, was the baptism of John, which is a couple years before, was that from heaven or from men? (laughs) You answer me. And they began reasoning among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, then why did you not believe him? But shall we say from men, they were afraid of the people because everyone considered John to have been a real prophet. And this is really very telling. They answered Jesus and they said, we do not know. The very people that were the authority actually don't have an answer. Which just places Jesus as, as we know, the person of authority. It's just perfect. This delegation of the priests and the, and the scribes and the elders is the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish executive, legislative, and judicial uh, council. Um, of its time. And it consisted of 70 members plus its presiding officer, the high priest. And they were the official guardians of the law. And so therefore, they had both the right and the responsibility to investigate anyone who claimed to be sent by God. But their motives were impure. And when you're really not interested in God's authority, you're just not going to hear His authority at all. And that's what was taking place here. They were not there to seek truth. These men, like so many of us, I would imagine, either now or in our past, these men loved authority. We love our own authority. And so that's what we wrestle with, is giving up our authority to the Lord's authority. And until we're willing to do that, certain things just are not going to happen in our walk with the Lord. You and I must not be lazy in allowing the authority of our Lord to pour over our lives. You and I must not be lazy in allowing the authority of our Lord to pour over our lives because where we don't and how we don't, we'll fill those gaps. We'll fill those spaces with our own. And then it gets tricky. Authority in these verses is mentioned four times. And that's what it's all about. We love our own authority and they weren't willing to give that up. And so Jesus refers back to John the Baptist and he says, you know, was his baptism from God or from men? And why does he do that? Well, I've shared this before. God will not teach us a new truth if we've rejected the truth that he's already given us. Why? 
So he's making that point very clear. And so often we're trying to get to that next place with the Lord, that next place with the Lord, and it's just not happening. And God's like, you need to put it in reverse and deal with some of the stuff I've already taught you. And that's what he's pointing out here in these verses. The Jewish religious leaders had not accepted what John had taught. So why should God say anything more? John 7.17 is a great verse for this principle as we wind this down. He says, if anyone is willing, John 7, yeah, John 7.17, if anyone's willing to do his will, then you'll know if the teaching is legitimate or not. Whether it's from God or not. But if you're not willing to do his will, God can't teach you. There's a British preacher, uh, F.W. Robertson. He has a quote which I love. He says, Obedience is the organ of spiritual knowledge. Obedience is the organ of spiritual knowledge. A lot of us want to increase in our knowledge of the Lord, but if there's no obedience, it's just impossible. Think about this. There's a lot at stake. Our obedience affects our ability to discern the Word of God. Right? Our obedience affects our ability to discern the Word of God. The lack of discerning the Word of God affects our ability to pray according to the will of God. And not praying according to the will of God renders our prayers useless and our lives fruitless. We're at Perfect timing, but I don't think we can do the ending song. So I'm just going to close this in prayer. And then if you need prayer, our, uh, some of our prayer team will be available here to uh, my left. Let's pray. God, thank you so much. We love you, Lord. We love you that you're clear. We love you, Lord, that you came to extend grace, not to judge. Lord, continue to help us. Lord, your grace is just amazing to me. But Lord, may it shape us and shift us according to Your will. Lord, may we, may this house be a house of prayer. May we pray and praise You according to the truth of Your Word. Thank You for Your Scripture, Lord. Thank You for a church that embraces it. Lord, we love You so much. Continue to have Your way in this church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.